Episode 6, The Iliad and the Trojan War. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and we try to see how those events shaped our modern world. This is Episode 6, The Iliad and the Trojan War. One of the most famous events of the ancient world is the war between the Greeks and the Trojans, and it's told in the epic novel The Iliad and then finished in the next epic novel, The Odyssey. The funny thing is, we don't even know for sure if this war really happened. Regardless of whether the battle really happened, the stories of the Iliad and the Odyssey are two of the most important and most famous written works in all of human history. So today we're going to look at those stories. We're going to look at their author, their historical background, and the impact they had on Greek society and on history. Last week, we looked at the city-states and the geography of ancient Greece. As we mentioned, the Greeks were sailors, adventurers, explorers, and warriors. To the east of the Greek peninsula is the Aegean Sea, where the Greeks sailed frequently. And across the Aegean was one of the rival cities to the cities of Greece, that is, the city-state of Troy. The ancient Greeks called that city Ilium, and it was one of the chief rivals for control of the Aegean Sea and, importantly, control of the trade routes from Asia. The Iliad tells the story of a Greek fleet that has already landed on the shores of the city of Troy, and it tells the story of the battles between the Greek heroes and the Trojan heroes. We'll talk about the story itself in just a bit, but let's look at the background of it first. The Iliad and the Odyssey were to the Greeks what the Bible is to Christianity, They are the works with which the Greeks identify themselves and their gods and their mythology. It's a defining story that defines the culture of ancient Greece. Even though it's mythology, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not true. It's most likely that there really was a war at Troy fought by great heroes. It's probable, though, that the story was embellished and made into legend over hundreds of years until it was eventually written down. The Iliad was supposedly written down around 800 BC by the Greek poet Homer. The thing is, though, we don't really know that much about Homer. Scholars are not even sure if he really existed. There are lots of later legends about him, but there are no surviving records of him from 800 BC, from his time, that prove his existence. So it's possible that Homer is just a myth. But there's really no other people who are mentioned as the possible author of the Iliad or the Odyssey, so it still makes sense to go ahead and just attribute them to Homer. The evidence about his authorship is a bit suspect, but it really is the only account we have of the author of these two amazing stories. So let's just go ahead and go with it. Homer supposedly lived either in Ionia, which is in present-day Turkey, or he lived on Chios, one of the islands in the north part of the Aegean Sea. It depends on which legend you refer to. The legends, though, all suggest that he was blind and that he was a poet, a wandering poet, who recited his works orally, which makes it weird that he's the author of these things, so probably someone else who could actually write wrote them down later. 
So it probably wasn't until a good bit later that his works were actually written down, um, even if he did compose them. And on top of that, our oldest surviving copies of the Iliad aren't until much later than that. Our oldest fragments of the story date to around 200 BC, and our oldest full copy of the Iliad dates to around 900 AD. But scholars who study these things have dated the language used in the Iliad to around 700 or 800 BC. So that's about 400, 500 years after the story uh, supposedly took place. I said we don't know all that much about the author, Homer, although his authorship of the Iliad and the Odyssey are attested to by the historian Herodotus, who lived only 400 years later. Um, many scholars think that the stories were originally preserved as oral legends and passed down by storytellers, and then finally written down in a definitive form by Homer, who put them in his own poetic style. There is a problem with that, though, because Homer is rumored to have been blind, so he's probably not the actual writer. Maybe he's just dictating it, but he's the one that the authorship is always attributed to. The language and poetry of both stories is exceptional and deeply influenced both Greek writers and thinkers for many generations. Anyone who studies ancient Greek as a language recognizes that the Iliad and the Odyssey are really, really well written. So they influenced other Greek writers in terms of style and in terms of content. In fact, it's kind of hard to overstate how important these two works were to the development of both literature and scholarship and philosophy in ancient Greece. Any ancient Greek scholar back in the days would have probably memorized the entirety of both books. Memorized it, right? That's 30,000 lines of poetry total. The story talks about a battle that happened during the Mycenaean period of Greek history, when the Greeks were led by the king of Mycenae, which was the biggest city in Greece at the time. And the Iliad gets that part right. The Greek army is led by King Agamemnon from Mycenae. Historians, for a long time, thought that this epic battle that the Iliad tells about between Greece and Troy was just a myth. But in 1870, a German archaeologist named Heinrich Schleimann found in what is now Turkey, an ancient city that might have been Troy. So scholars began to investigate it more and more. Since then, more and more evidence has been found, and today experts are pretty sure that Troy really did exist. Um, the Greeks called it Ilium, hence the name the Iliad, but the modern rendition in English is Troy. So apparently around 1250 BC, there really was a battle between the Greeks and the city of Troy. We don't know if that battle is the battle that inspired the Iliad and then the Odyssey, but we at least know there's legit historical evidence of a battle going on between these two places. The first book, the Iliad, tells the story of the Trojan War, why it happened, and the heroes and the gods that were involved. The gods are heavily involved in the action of the story. In fact, it's kind of their fault that there's this battle going on. As the story opens, in fact, the Greeks are facing a plague on their army sent by the god Apollo. There was a major temple to Apollo at Troy, and the Greeks captured the daughter of one of the temple priests. Apollo shows his displeasure at this by sending a plague on the Greeks. So that just as a starting example, the gods are involved. Throughout the story, the gods have a direct effect on the outcome of battles and a direct influence on the thoughts 
motivations and dreams of the heroes. It's in fact, uh, in part from the description of these desires and motivations of the gods in the Iliad and the Odyssey, that ancient Greek theology and mythology develop. The things that are shown as valuable to the gods and heroes are honor, bravery, loyalty, and beauty. But both the gods and the heroes are shown to be fallible, selfish, prone to anger, indignation, and pouting. The gods pout a lot in this story. The stories also give details about the relative importance of each god. For example, Zeus is the king of the gods and Hera is his jealous wife. Much of the trouble that led to the war is attributed to Hera. Hera constantly helps the Greeks because she's mad at a Trojan prince named Paris who snubbed her. We'll get back to that in a minute. Um, so Hera motivates a lot of the action here. But besides valuing honor, loyalty, and bravery, the Iliad and Odyssey also show the dangers of uncontrolled anger and unchecked pride. So you, you get that value structure in those books, and that influences the values of Greek theologians and philosophers for ages to come. The stories of the gods and the heroes become the most important sources of inspiration for later Greek thinkers and Greek mythology Greek theology, Greek philosophy. It's said that Alexander the Great, a Greek who conquered most of the world uh, later on, uh, that he, and we'll talk about him again later, it's said that he slept with a copy of the Iliad under his pillow. The Iliad and the Odyssey are two of the oldest written stories. They're really, really old stories as complete stories. Uh, and they're two of the greatest works of literature and poetry in all of the history of human literature. Um, their influence is immense. They're truly epic stories, full of great characters, and they explore some really deep topics, including these questions of honor, bravery, duty, how men interact with the gods, and even the afterlife. So, how does the story go? In the Iliad, it's very clear that Agamemnon, the king of Mycenae, is the chieftain among all the Greek kings. The Greek kings, they all defer to him. Mycenae was the largest and most powerful of all the city-states at the time, and thus Agamemnon is considered the most important and the most powerful of the Greek kings. In addition to this, all the other Greek kings had sworn fealty or allegiance to him and to his brother Menelaus under what are the terms of what's called the Oath of Tyndarius. Well before the Trojan War, Tyndarius was a wise old man, and all the Greek kings came to him asking him who could have the right to marry Helen, the most beautiful woman on earth. They all wanted to marry her. Tyndarius is going to answer the question for them. So Tyndarius proclaims that they should all hold a series of contests to see who's worthy to win her. And he further declared that all the kings must swear an oath to uphold the marriage of Helen to whoever the victor of the contest was, right? So whoever's going to win the contest gets to marry Helen, but everybody else has to swear an oath to be, you know, on board with this outcome. So Menelaus wins, and thus all the kings of Greece from each city-state were honor-bound to protect him and his marriage to Helen. Now, Paris, who was from Troy, was asked by the goddesses Hera, Aphrodite, and Athena to choose which goddess was the most beautiful. This was because they had been given an apple that said, to the fairest, but it wasn't clear who that apple was for. So they pick a human to decide for them. This is the cause of all the trouble. The gods are trying to get a human to pick who's the most beautiful god. Bad idea. 
Anyway, Hera, Aphrodite, and Athena all offer Paris different gifts if they will choose them. And um, Aphrodite offers him the most beautiful woman in the world, Helen. So Paris picks Aphrodite as the most beautiful, and uh, Aphrodite gives Helen to him, which is kind of weird because Helen's already married to Menelaus. But anyway, suddenly she's with uh, Paris, and Paris takes her back to Troy with him. Right? Besides making Hera furious at Paris and all of Troy, uh, he's also infuriated all the Greeks because they're all on board with this um, marriage between Menelaus and Helen, and they're all honor-bound to protect Menelaus. So when the Trojan prince Paris steals Helen away, all of the Greek kings were bound to come help Menelaus win her back. And that's what begins the Trojan War. So Menelaus appeals to Agamemnon. They rally all the warriors to sail to Troy and take Helen back. And the Iliad tells all those pieces as backstory. It actually starts with the Greek army already on the field of battle in front of Troy. And then they're, they're starting to deal with this uh, plague that has come from Apollo. Apollo, of course, has sided with the Trojans because they have a temple to him there. He's a major temple to Apollo there. Hera sides with the Greeks, and Zeus kind of stays aloof and doesn't really pick a side, but other gods and goddesses join in and influence what happens in the battle, including Aphrodite and Athena. Um, the Greeks are camped on the shore between the ocean and the city of Troy in a big plain where they're camped near the, um, near the water's edge, and they march out into the plain in front of the city of Troy uh, to do battle, and they have battles back and forth. The Trojans have a great warrior named Hector, who is Paris's older brother, and who's the son of the king of Troy. And um, Hector defeats many of the Greeks in battle, but the Greeks also have a great warrior. In fact, one of the greatest warriors in all of history, Achilles. When Achilles was a baby, his mother took him to the underworld and dipped him underwater in the river Styx. That's the river that separates the underworld from the rest of the world. And once you've crossed the river Styx, there's no coming back. But if you get dipped in the river Styx, this makes you invulnerable to any kind of weapon. So Achilles can't be stabbed or cut or uh, injured by any kind of weapon, except on his heel where his mother held him. Of course, this is where we get the phrase Achilles heel. So Achilles fights through the battle um, and, and begins to eventually battle against Hector. The Iliad is leading up to this battle between Achilles and Hector. And there's some other bits of tension that go on in the Iliad, including um, Achilles getting uh, in a disagreement with Menelaus and Agamemnon and refusing to fight and things going badly for the Greeks. But in the end, it all builds up to this battle between Achilles and Hector. So Achilles and Hector fight an epic battle right in front of the gates of Troy, and, and just the two of them fighting in front of both of the armies, and eventually Achilles defeats Hector. In his anger at things that have happened before, and including anger at Hector, Achilles, after he kills Hector, he ties his body to his chariot and drags him around the battlefield in front of the city as the horrified uh, armies look on. It was an incredible dishonor done by Achilles, and even the gods are mad at him. Hector's father, King Priam, comes later to Achilles in the Greek camp, and he begs for his son's body. Achilles is moved to tears, and he gives Hector's body back to Priam. Right? And that's the end of the Iliad, 
as a story. But there's all sorts of unresolved tension here in the overall story, right? It's There's still a war going on, and the story just kind of ends with the war unresolved. Some of that story, the rest of the war, is recounted in the Odyssey, but some of it's in other later epics. So just to continue the narrative of the Trojan War, we have to pick up bits and pieces from other places um, in the Odyssey and from other places besides Homer. So back to the story. After Achilles gives back Hector's body, apparently the Greeks and the Trojans go back to fighting. Achilles, being invulnerable, kills a lot of Trojans, but the gods are still not happy with Achilles. So, Apollo incites Paris to shoot an arrow and guides the arrow to Achilles' one weak spot, his heel. The arrow pierces him there, and Achilles bleeds to death in front of Troy. Interesting, that part of the story where Achilles is shot in the heel. It's, it's not in any of the stuff written by Homer, but it does show up in, in other later stories. So both heroes are dead. The Greeks have still not captured the city. Let's call it a draw. The Iliad ends with the battle still a stalemate, but the story continues in the Odyssey. The Odyssey is mostly a story about the hero Odysseus and his ill-fated journey back to his home island of Ithaca, but there's places where it tells other pieces of the story of the Battle of Troy. The Odyssey starts just after the battle has ended, and and the Greeks are all about to sail back home to Greece. Um, But later, in the Odyssey, Odysseus has a blind singer named Demodocus tell the story of what happened. The real trick of what happened to Troy and how the war ended is also recorded in a later epic poem, the Aeneid. The Aeneid tells the story of a Trojan warrior named Aeneas. Uh, He ends up going on his own journey, but we'll tell more on that in a moment. But the Aeneid and this other part of the Odyssey explains how the Greeks defeat the Trojans. Odysseus thinks of a trick, and the Greeks implement it. They build a giant wooden horse, and they leave it in front of the city gates. Then the Greeks all get in their ships and leave. So they have a trick up their sleeve, though. They've left some of their best soldiers, including Odysseus, inside the wooden horse. The Trojans wake up in the morning. The Greek army and navy are gone, but there's this huge wooden horse. And in a bad example of not really thinking through what's going on, the Trojans think this is just an offering to the goddess of Athena, goddess Athena, and they wheel the horse inside the city to Athena's temple. Then that night, the city begins a massive celebration because the Greeks have left and the war is over. Ah, but beware of Greeks bearing gifts. I guess that saying didn't exist back then. Probably this is where it comes from. The Greek soldiers inside the horse sneak out at night and they open the city gates. The Greek navy has come back and all the Greek soldiers are waiting outside on the the plains in front of the city and they all come storming in. So the Greek army captures the city and basically burns it to the ground. And that's the end of the story of the Trojan War. Um, And after the war is finally over and the Greeks have won, that's when the story of the Odyssey begins. So the Odyssey itself tells the story of Odysseus' wanderings across the Mediterranean as he tries to get back home. He's angered the gods, and so they blow him off course, and and they're against him in a lot of different ways as he travels. But some of the gods are on his side, too. So he runs into the Cyclops and kills it. Cyclops was a son of Poseidon's, so that angers Poseidon even further. Later, uh, uh, Odysseus runs into the goddess Calypso, the witch, Circe, 
He runs into the sirens and to the monsters Scylla and Charybdis, among other troubles, before he finally gets home. When he does finally get home back to his island of Ithaca, right, his own house is full of suitors trying to woo his wife because everyone thinks him dead. After snooping around in disguise for a little while, Odysseus ends up going full John Wick on them, of course, and the story ends with all the suitors dead and him at home with his family. So let me briefly go back to this story that I mentioned of Aeneas, one of the princes of Troy. There's not a whole lot said about Aeneas in the Iliad or the Odyssey, but later, a Roman poet named Virgil writes a Latin epic poem to rival Homer's Greek epic poems. And Virgil's story is the Aeneid. It tells the story of Aeneas's wanderings in the Mediterranean. Yes, it's, it's a lot like the Odyssey. There's nothing new under the sun. But Aeneas wanders the Mediterranean and then eventually lands in Italy. According to Virgil, Aeneas becomes the founder of a small tribe who eventually becomes a good bit bigger, and eventually they come to play a big part in the history of the Mediterranean and the Western world. And you might have heard of this tribe. They were known as the Romans. Well, we'll get to the Romans in their own time. As I mentioned uh, in episode five, we're, we're talking about the height of Mycenaean culture and its decline, and the the Trojan War seems to be the high point of Mycenaean culture because after this, after the timing of the Trojan War, Mycenaean culture goes into a decline. There's this time frame from about 1100 BC to around 800 BC where no, um, there's not much literature or uh, record of what's going on in Greece. And it's known as the Greek Dark Ages. But somewhere around 800 BC, there's this guy born named Homer, and he writes these two epic poems. So you could say that these poems are the beginning of the end of the Greek Dark Ages and the beginning of the Golden Age of Greece, which we're going to talk about very soon. But before we come back to Greek's Golden Age, we're going to take a sidestep over in the next episode, and we're going to look at Israel again and look at their own short-lived Golden Age and their two great kings, David and Solomon.